3: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. We are here today with the editors of the book, Experimenting with Ethnography, a Companion to Analysis, published by the Duke University Press in
1: 2021.
3: Dr. Andrea Ballestero and Dr. Britt Wintayak, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, you. Fulia.
3: Well, let's start with the classic first question of New Books Network. So could you please tell us about your backgrounds in anthropology? Sh- Andrea?
1: Sure. Uh, hello to all of our listeners. It's really wonderful uh, to be in your companion, uh, companionship. And this is a very interesting question for me because my background in anthropology begins at the end so to speak. So my original training was not in anthropology. My first degree, I should say that I spent uh, four years in, in college, in the university here in Costa Rica, where I'm from and where I'm speaking from today. Uh, taking different classes in different social sciences and humanities, and I just could not decide what it was that I wanted to study. And so after that period of time, my mom said, it's time for you to make a decision, and I decided to study law because it was the thing that I had not studied yet. After that, I did a master's in natural resource policy um, in the United States, and only for my PhD did I arrive uh, to anthropology, which was... Uh, a wonderful uh, point to, to end and begin a new, a new phase uh, as anthropology allowed me to ask the questions that I was interested in and to craft the kinds of um, research processes that, that inspired me and that felt politically responsible and uh,
2: important to me. And Brit? Yeah, hi. I also would like to thank you very much for this invitation. And I'm calling from Copenhagen, where I also did my uh, training in anthropology. Um, I did my bachelor's degree at University of Aarhus first, and then I moved to University of Copenhagen, where I studied anthropology until I was about to go on field work And I had big trouble finding um, a, a supervisor who would actually help me do what I wanted to, which was technology in in Europe. So I was lucky to do a PhD, which combined anthropology and science and technology studies in the Netherlands, where um, studying technology with ethnography, using anthropological concepts and methods was uh, a little more uh, accepted, I felt, at that point. Of course, now I know that uh, lots of people to go to, and uh, maybe I was just not finding uh, the right people at that time. But it just meant that I did five years of anthropological training, and then I did my PhD in science and technology studies using um, a lot of my anthropological background and training in that work. So I did a PhD on um, categorization as the doctors use them in electronic patient records and uh, became what I now think of as an infrastructure uh, studies scholar.
3: That's amazing. So you two are also working in places like Ethnography Studio and Ethos Lab. So I want to ask you, what are you doing nowadays? Andrea, you can start first if you wish.
1: Yes. So the the Ethnography Studio is a, a project that is uh, dear to my heart, Uh in large part, because it is the result of my collaboration with with students and faculty that we invite to join us. So the the studio just uh, finished our annual salon. Uh, uh, well, just a couple of months ago, uh, this year's theme was refusing poetic restraint, and we had an amazing group of scholars visit us, and uh, an equally amazing group of students. Uh, asking questions about uh, poetic form, uh, all of the possibilities therein, and limitations as well. So at the moment, I am working on transitioning the the studio into a new institutional setting. Uh, I myself am moving institutions. I spent nine years at Rice University, and now I'm moving to the University of Southern California, where the studio is going to take uh, a new life after... 10 years of existence already. So we're in the process of um, thinking forward. Uh, and that means uh, a more systematic approach to collaborating with similar spaces around the world, including Ethos Lab and other spaces in Latin America and North America as well. So we are
2: in, in the process of planning our near future yeah, and and it's true that I was part of starting the Ethos Lab here at the IT University of Copenhagen, where we uh, where I'm also based, and where we have uh, uh, STS slash anthropology slash human computer interaction slash computer supported cooperative work other kinds of approaches to the digital world uh, group. Um, and Ether's Lab was our group's um, attempt to try to make our methods visible to the rest of the university and to potential partners outside uh, of the university. So it was a, a platform and for inviting people, both our colleagues in, in computer science, for example, and also um, like societal partners, uh, NGOs, uh, public authorities, companies, to work with us on uh, you know, what we saw as a sort of a digital uh, ethnography, uh, for example, visualization of uh, qualitative data, but also working across the quality and the quantitative uh, methods that we uh, had students uh, who were very interested in. So it, uh, it still uh, exists. It's run by Rachel Douglas Jones and uh, my colleague Marissa Cohn, and uh, it's uh, it's really an experimental space, and it's very much in the in the yeah ethos uh, that we've uh, worked together uh, Andrea and I am uh, editing this book uh, because we had these similar interests that we really wanted to collaborate with others in these kind of spaces to figure out how we can push the boundaries of our methods.
3: That's amazing, very exciting too. So uh, we'll talk about the book itself in a moment, but I first wanted to make a small comment. So I was particularly excited about this book and this podcast because I myself am a PhD student and I'm currently writing my dissertation. And after coming back from the field, I often felt very lost and um, became quite overwhelmed with how to work through so many different materials, so many field notes, So many transcriptions, so many images, how to work on all these together and build a coherent framework. The book really demystified the processes of thinking and analyzing for me, uh, kind of giving us a sense of how those magical moments of finding patterns and frameworks occur for many scholars in real life. And it actually provides us with some very doable, very feasible practices as well. So it's a very descriptive and also a guiding piece. It is so difficult to craft a book like this that is not not overwhelming for the reader. In fact, I have multiple notes on the book right now that goes like, wow, this is exactly how I feel or how I felt. So the book definitely makes one feel like they're not alone while also teaching them new doable, feasible practices. So I praise Mm -hmm. you and all the contributors for being able to craft this book in this way.
1: Thank you so much, Fulia. Uh, I wish... Uh, Our listeners could uh, see my face because I'm smiling a lot right now because this (laughs) is exactly what we had in mind and uh, exactly the kind of invitation that we wanted to make um, so that people felt uh, welcome in inhabiting the analysis space uh, rather than feeling they had to move quickly through it or just use techniques that felt too mechanic and not... uh, and not generative for what we love ethnography for, like the capacity to illuminate worlds that we don't quite anticipate. Um, so thank you so much for those words. That's that's wonderful.
2: Yes, and you also said, I mean, I love that you said you, it made me feel, this is exactly how I feel, because as one of our contributors, uh, Professor Marisol de la Cadena writes, uh, that that we need to learn how to think-feel um, and that's also, you know, in the in the spirit of of the book, that kind of invitation that Andrea is speaking about, that it, it's it's trying to work on our senses uh, in a way that goes together with our analytical uh, repertoire and registers.
3: Yeah, and and like. Both of you said so many amazing things. And I think the book does an amazing job in uh, what you aimed for. So let's talk about the book more specifically. How did you decide to work on this book? Did you feel like there was a certain need, a certain gap that you wanted to address with it?
2: Hmm. Yeah, I can start. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely, I mean, there are many contexts for the book. and uh, But then I will start like biographically, I think, with my own story. Uh, I went to 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 do a, a research visit at University of Melbourne in uh, 2009, uh, visiting Helen Baran, who's also one of the contributors of the book. We were discussing this, uh, and that was what I took with me home after leaving Australia again. You know, so what can we do to both, you know, keep the theoretical analytical registers present, but also, you know, just Come up with some advice, uh, some stuff that people can do to try out things, and and what would that book look like? So that seed for me uh, was uh, sown already there. And then I met Andrea, and luckily and fantastically, Andrea had been thinking uh, things that were very compatible. I don't know if they were similar or different, but we just, you know, had this entered this space where we very quickly found out that we wanted to work together to make this real. And then I think I'll pass the word to you, Andre, with your entrance, or if you want to provide another context, because there are other contexts, of course, as well, which is about the knowledge economy, university, and the, the speeding up and the acceleration of research and knowledge practices that is, of course, also a part of the context and our you know, sense that something is needed for us to slow down analysis. But Andrea, what are you? Yes. Uh
1: it's it's a it's a beautiful story of both richness and uh and uh, some things that we're missing. So I don't often think in terms of gaps. Um, I I feel that uh the idea of of, of something uh the idea of something not existing is an idea that comes uh, from uh, from a particular view of the world. Uh, this is not to say that uh, everything is out there, just waiting for for you to look at it. But it is to say that I, one of the things in which Brit and I uh, converged so nicely was in this uh, feminist inspiration to to doing uh, collaborative work that doesn't come from a place of lack, but comes from a place of of richness and collaboration uh, and cooperation without idealizing any of those terms, right? Uh, And and hence the notion of companionship in in the book, companionship, both in, in, in the joyous moments, but also in the difficult moments. And so the inspiration... Uh, for that was uh, largely uh, coming from a number of, uh, of uh, thinkers, but particularly from the work of, of Marilyn Strathern, who explicitly had talked about uh, this question of where and how ethnography happens. And, and we took direct inf- inspiration from her concept of the ethnographic effect. And as we started to uh, unpack, uh, that that amazing uh, piece of work of hers and realizing the way in which the concept of the ethnographic effect or the ethnographic dazzle had, be, had been sort of commodified in the sense closed off as, a, as an object that could travel and could be applied to any circumstance, which is something that, uh, as you might imagine, is not at all the intention of, of the concept. Uh, the concept grows from a particular Ethnographic context that demands a certain kind of thinking, and and that was the inspiration uh, for this kind of work, uh, for our book. How is it that you don't end up commodifying concepts or insights, but rather? Producing the concepts and insights that grow out of your ethnographic specificity. So it is. It is in honor of Marilyn Strathern, but refusing the temptation of taking her concept and just circulating it as something that fits everywhere and anywhere. And so, with that inspiration, we started thinking. That's all. That's all wonderful. But we're both uh, practical and pragmatic people, and also. Um, inspired by feminist thought and practice, we, these are not abstract ideas. These are ideas that have to happen in the world, produced through particular forms of labor, with particular bodies, in particular institutional settings. Hence uh, the comments that uh, Britt was making about them, uh, the knowledge economy that we are a part of. And so, with that in mind, we were looking for resources uh, for uh, guiding ourselves, really, <laughs> in, in this in this practice of uh, of creating us. Our contributors say ethnographic concepts uh, that are attached to their context and yet can also provide insights that can speak to other circumstances, and um, and that is what we understand as analysis, right? That practice of that labor of doing that work. At the same time, uh, we were inspired, and, and we recognized the amazing work that had been published on, on two ends of the of the process. If we idealize the process as a linear um, series of events, which we know it's not, but just for for the sake of conversation, there's amazing resources dedicated to fieldwork, um, both in terms of the ethics and politics, but also in in, in terms of the you know, more conventional or traditional techniques, like how do you do an interview, how do you write uh, field notes, etc. And there's also amazing resources in terms of writing. Uh, a lot of those resources um, really praise in beautiful writing and the aesthetics of writing. And yet there was something in the middle that, that we felt uh, we could pull together to offer to our, our community uh, of interlocutors. And that was, again, as I said, um, for the sake of analysis, just creating a linear process that is not such in reality. Uh, but that space of analysis, uh, that space of sitting down with all of your field works, all, all of your field work, your field notes, your images—exactly what you described, Fulia. Yeah? And how do you? What do you do with that?
3: <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> if you don't want to just. You know, uh, rely on a more mechanical uh, approach, um, which has its place and its uses. uh, But um, what if you wanted to play a little bit and be more creative with what analysis could become? And that's how we decided that instead of uh, writing a treaty on analysis, the thing to do was to make visible all of the amazing work that so many people were producing and uh, all of the careful thinking that was happening uh, and hence the, the contributors to the, to the book and many other people that some we invited but they couldn't uh, contribute to the book. Some people we didn't know at that time and they should be in the book. So uh, this book could be much longer, of course, but uh, but that was the idea to bring together what was already happening uh, in the hands, in the bodies, in the minds, in the souls of so many uh, amazing people, and uh, ask them uh, to to work with us uh, in a somewhat unique model. Uh, and we, we can talk about that a little bit later. How is it that what were the mechanics of publishing this work and getting the contributor contributors um, to to sign up? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So throughout the book, it was very easy to see how generous uh, both of you and also all the contributors are. Um, It was really easy to see this uh, collaborative uh, way of looking at analysis and ethnographic research. So in my opinion, the book Could be used for methods courses. The protocols in each chapter could be used as assignments, even in several different courses. It could be read before going to the field, after coming back from the field. It could be read when one is just trying to improve their creativity. Honestly, it could be a life companion for many, I think. So, what are some of the uses of this book that you imagined while you were preparing this?
2: Um, Our first uh, thought. Was that this is a book that should be um, attractive for both novices and experts in anthropology? So we really wanted to do s- to make something useful, in the sense that you that the life companion that you're describing is exactly what we were thinking about. So something uh, that was uh, inviting to craft, but also to unlearn, so that. Um, we would have a reader in mind who would, maybe in the in a very senior position, but still uh, wanting to 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 push herself uh, again into a new place. So that is uh, at least one uh, way that we imagined the user. So so that's a very broad audience you could say. But we didn't stop there because we also thought, well, but people outside the university could also be interested. I mean. One thing is anthropology, um, uh, expert and novices uh, who are in the field. But how about all the consultancies who use ethnography and uh, do user studies, for example? And also, you know, are, are really thirsty to um, discover new things in their material or rediscover uh, other perspectives on on old material. So so I think we were super um, naïve in terms of audience (laughs) in the sense that we just really wanted to make something useful for everybody who would be doing um, ethnographic world in order to do what Andrea talked about, the the inspiration from Mary Lister return to have ethnographic effects that were, um, you know, um, surprising. Yeah.
1: I'll I'll add to that that uh, also it's one person or one research group could be many, many users uh, or many audiences or could give each of the chapters many uses or could just use one chapter. So uh, one of the aims was for the structure uh, of the book, the structure of the chapters themselves. To be flexible in the sense that you don't, uh, the offerings that the authors make are not tightly uh, regulated steps that need to be followed, or else, right? Uh, On the contrary, there are uh, suggestions on how to take a certain route with the full expectation that as you start the travel, uh, you're going to have to make adjustments for these to be generative for your own uh, purposes. And the other thing that I will say is that it also, uh, part of it is, f- part of the utility is that people might try some things and those things might not work. And this is something that uh, in, our, in, in my pedagogical uh, work, I also really emphasize. It's really important to try things and sometimes for those things to not work. Because the, because otherwise you're you're working from the presumption that anything is possible anywhere, that any of these protocols apply to any project, and of course that's not the case. So we wanted each of the chapters to be to provide enough uh, so that um, people could use uh, their the protocols, the ideas, the suggestions, but also enough openness and flexibility for people to
2: change. Uh, what they thought maybe maybe we should uh, introduce a protocol because i'm not sure we've done that yet and people who listen may not yet have um know about the protocols i'm not sure yeah i was just gonna
3: ask about the format of the book but andrea uh, you can finish your uh words and then i will continue
1: Great, thank you. Um, so uh, this idea of y- using the 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 chapters and the protocols uh, and finding what doesn't work as well. And the last thing I wanted to say is that it's, it, it was really so incredible to work with the authors and the way in which they embraced this idea and the way in which all of the chapters Uh, are crafted in such a way that they reflect these these qualities of of openness, but enough structure so that play can can unfold. So I'll say, uh, maybe briefly, uh, each chapter has uh, a narrative uh, uh, text that takes the reader into the specific ways in which The idea or the analytic technique that an author is proposing has been used by that author, so it's not an abstract description, but a concrete description, and we like to say an ethnographic description of the process of analysis, and then at the end, the chapter um, has this succinct, condensed, intense set of ideas that uh, we are calling a protocol, which (laughs) give guidance uh, to the reader on how to take the analytic route that the author has taken in their own uh, projects. But it's enough guide, like I said, enough guidance so that you feel you can do this, but it's not too much guidance in the sense that it doesn't close off what is possible as you encounter your own material by going through this route that that the author has proposed.
3: Yeah, so let's talk a bit more about the format of the book. So it has 19 rather shortish chapters, all written by amazing junior and senior scholars. It then additionally has two afterward pieces from PhD students in uh, different levels of their studies, which I really appreciated. Um, each chapter is finished with bullet points, analytic protocols suggested by these amazing contributors. So could you tell us how you ended up making the decisions about the format of the book?
2: Yes, I can start. Uh, We discussed the metaphor of the recipe quite a lot in the beginning, uh, Andrea and I, and whether uh, exactly that uh, metaphor of cooking would be quite helpful in relation to this idea that Andrea described so nicely before about we wanting people to be able to follow steps in a process but also to deviate from them in order to play and and revise uh, the, the protocol or the, the the structure and the points uh, and the steps the five steps are the uh, the process that we were describing for people to be able to uh, open up the material and work through the material in a playful way so we had this idea and then we thought well really, the, the notion of a protocol is quite close to the notion of experiment. Or it comes from the same world, and we're quite fascinating with uh, experimenting and using that as a, which became later the title of the book: "Experimenting with ethnography. So to try to reclaim that um, sense that there's both structure, there's also curiosity, there's a lot of material attention, which is something that the the protocol. Uh, and the experiment together really directs your attention to that you you need to take materiality seriously in relation to what you're doing. Um, the experiment can also happen in many different sites. It can be inside a laboratory. It can be in the wild. It can be on the um, a semi uh, site or in several sites. And and so the protocol was a nice anchor in 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 both. I guess, relating to the, to the world of the experiment and experimental sites. So it, was, it was, had a family resemblance there, but it also uh, was an anchor because we know anthropologists well enough to know that maybe it's easier to, to do something uh, playful than actually to try to follow the steps. And we were also quite committed to communicating, well, maybe you could also try to follow this. Process and then see what's happening, like going through them several times, uh, in order to slow down uh, the analytic process.
1: I'll also add to that uh, maybe uh, a counterintuitive dimension to this. We also wanted to remain responsible for the the legacies of experimentation and the legacies uh, like racial, uh, uh, economic. Uh, Colonial uh legacies of of the notion of the experiment. And so we wanted a a concept that kept us on our toes, so to speak. Um so besides that that historical legacy, also because of the recognition but that we live in the time of experimentation, right? Experimentation is a thorough neoliberal concept uh it's a, it's you need to experiment and innovate and produce the new it's the ethos of our time and so we didn't want to be naive about that either like we wanted to recognize this is the moment that we live in and in some ways we um we are part of that that context in many ways in all ways in a ways uh uh and so how to how to Remind ourselves and not mystify experimentation, and not mystify innovation, and not mystify the new, uh, but keep ourselves aware of the legacies of of the protocol as a as a hierarchical process and as a form of knowledge exclusion. So we also wanted that in a way, uh, just to remind us that there is no position of purity. Right, like the work we, we do is uh, is part of these uh, structures and hierarchies, historical and contemporary, and so uh, even if uh, it's exciting and it's it's seducing to think about the experimental. We also wanted to carry over a little bit of the discomfort that some people, uh, that that we might associate with the notion of a protocol, particularly in relation to anthropology. Whereas Bitt was saying, we have a, a certain uh, ethos of, of rejecting, uh, in principle at least, those uh, those legacies. So it was both uh, exciting and at the same time a reminder of of the legacies and the histories that are behind uh, our current moment and the, the, the ethos of the experiment at the moment.
3: Yeah. And this is a quite uh, experimental book in itself with, the, as I said, with the 19 chapters and two additional afterward pieces from PhD students, the bullet point approach uh, of protocols. So how was the process of publishing this book from collecting all these different um, pieces and working on them to editing and publishing it? And Andrea, I believe... You could answer this question
1: yes uh, it, it was a, a really uh, rewarding experience and uh, a really wonderful um, learning process and I should say that from the very beginning we uh, were committed to and we were in, we, we were lucky enough to be in a position where we can make the, we could make this commitment to give the time that the project needed, right? We were committed to maybe doing things slowly and maybe taking a long time to publish this. And indeed, we took a long time. Uh, The idea uh, in terms of the concrete workshop that happened first, where we began to to, uh, dream with this book, was in 2016. And so it took a while. Uh, We do have... Nineteen contributors were well, more than nineteen because there's uh, uh, co-authored pieces, but um, it was a lot of work to keep uh, all of our uh, to keep our calendar. That we were very intentional at the very beginning with giving ourselves a very loose calendar, mm-hmm. so that we could not be in that constant frenzy of always being late with things as I find myself <laughs> in the more individual work <laughs> more often than I that I should be at the moment. Um, so it took a long time. Um, we also made a commitment that uh, the review process we had an internal review process where each of the pieces was reviewed by two graduate students who were involved in the, in the project and ourselves uh, as editors. So we had a, a very thorough and ex- extensive process of, of, of review, um, uh, internal review, and it was really amazing to work with the, with the grad students who uh, are the authors of the two after, afterwards. They were really incredible. Um, and their contributions, you can see, Throughout uh, all of the all of the texts, um, and then uh, another important piece for us was the the idea of of trying to make the book open access, and we were able to work with the libraries at our universities, with Brits Center at ITU Copenhagen, uh, and and by work me I mean uh, collect financial resources, uh, and uh, Duke was open to making the, the book open access. And that was that was really wonderful uh, because we really hope that this book can travel. And so just a, a quick note, if you want the physical book, you can of course purchase it from, from Duke's website and other booksellers. But if you want the uh, PDF, you can download it from a number of, of locations, including uh, uh, my own website. So if you're interested, definitely uh download it and and spread it around the world that's amazing it's also a oh yes so go ahead i should say sorry i I forgot to say one more piece which was the reviewers from duke university press uh who, who were also incredible and in fact um we should say that uh we had a couple of of other friends read the introduction and give us really fantastic feedback but uh in addition to that the reviewers pushed us in really important ways uh encouraged us we all need encouragement uh and and they they made us uh they confirmed this sense that we had that the book was going to find homes and and hands and and minds uh, in its travels, and actually the title of the book changed, and it became what it is because of a suggestion of one of the of the reviewers. So big thank you to whoever that person is. We are actually going to use the ethnographic
2: effect. Oh, okay. Yes, and we also had our in, very first working title was "This is how we did it," because our idea oh. was inviting. People whose work we admired, and inviting them to write a fairly personal piece under a fairly harsh uh, <laughs> structure. So, so that was our invitation to them to share some of their processes, so opening up their uh, ways of working, um, but you know, under the this framework that we've already described with the protocol. So, I think that's also really part of the. The book's core, uh, that all the authors accepted to share some of themselves in a way that is not uh, quite similar to how you do uh, a, a standard um, scientific publication. There's a little more of them in there. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know no, not of them. it's this is wrong. So it's not auto ethnography or anything in that sense. But it's actually bringing, inviting the reader into their uh, work processes um, and, and, and generalizing from there, you could say, with the protocol. Yeah,
3: it's very interesting. And I was just going to ask you about the title of the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's great that you mentioned you changed the title a couple of times. So experimenting with ethnography. Experiment, as uh, Brit said, is often used for um, studies on physical sciences, but you kind of reclaim this term in the book. And in the second afterward, written by the PhD students, They also mention, um, oh, sorry, the first one. So they also mention. How experimenting is very similar to questioning. So, I wonder um, how, like, what does experimenting mean for you in this context? And what does experimenting with ethnography mean? And I also wonder if it is related to your experiences in experimental spaces like the Ethnography Studio and Ethos Lab. So, I'm really curious about the title like, how, um, what is experimenting here? And Brit, you can go ahead if you wish.
2: Yes. Um, I mean, there's a common sense uh, aspect of experimentation that is uh, liberating in a way, you know, that it, as I said before, if you focus on it from a natural science perspective, it's very much about constraint and the generosity that constraints can have. You know, if you know your setup, if you know your material, if you know how you're doing your recording, you have your overall question, and you can, you, 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 measure and you test and you revise and you you follow each step. But there's also in the common parlour uh, when we use experimentation, it's also very much about being open ended and and as Andrea so look at put it. It's I mean it's also part of our um, you know the innovation economy that experimentation is good. But we wanted to, you know, not to, to put too much value on the, either on the constraining part or the liberating part, but, but sort of keep them in the picture together and, you know, look at them and feel them and say, you know, this is it, 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 using experimentation in the ethnographic practice um, in, this, in this sort of open-ended way is helpful sometimes and in the constraining way is helpful sometimes. And we need to expand uh, our repertoires there, but know what we're doing. So it's very much about knowing what kind of experiment, experimentation we are engaging in um, to be, you know, aware uh, and and actively, you know, sort of questioning also the very setup of our analytical um, assumptions and our methods for uh, bringing forth a particular point and or, or using this or the other concept so I think for me that doubleness is is a very productive one that is in the notion of the experimental
1: yeah Andrea do you want to add to that yeah just briefly uh that was that was really great uh also uh, an important part of the of the of the puzzle here was that uh, experimentation doesn't have a predetermined form, right? Uh, we wanted to to just convey this sense that for us, uh, a form is not automatically experimental, right? Um, so at this moment in history, when there's so much exciting work going with the multimodal, for instance, or at some other moment in history where the experimental was, was all textual. Uh, and uh, for us, it was really important to, to, um, to put on the table uh, resources, uh, tools, techniques, that, uh, that give you the joys and the pleasures and also the headaches of being experimental without necessarily having to adopt a predetermined form. Um, because we can find a lot of ethnographic work that is experimental in the sense of being multi- multimodal or uh, and and in terms of analytics, uh, it's it's not that experimental, right? And so you don't have, to adopt the latest technology or you don't have to write in a particular kind of way to be experimental. Uh, The experimental uh, orientation is something that undergirds. It's it's that bubbling that happens before the pasta is cooked, right? (laughs) And then the pasta could be amazing in so many different ways. Um, But it's not how it looks at the end, that determines that something is experimental only. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So
3: when I look at the book, I saw some common themes across all these 19 chapters and even in the afterwards. So we have immersion, we have collaboration, we have the importance of non unified theory, non universal uh, thinking, but still analytical and systematic and in depth thinking done through rigorous and deep analysis. And um, the fact that all of these scholars are focusing on the how of the analysis and not on the what of the analysis. So can you tell us a bit about some common themes on analysis under which all of these contributors of the book worked? And Brit, you can go ahead.
2: Yes, I mean, we had these 19 chapters um, and we'd all uh, given we had actually given each also some kind of assignment or some kind of you know expectation that they could, of course, negotiate. But based on what we knew they were working on, uh, we had some idea of what we would like them to write about. But then we had some wildly uh, different uh, chapters um, that we would somehow have to organize. And I think Andrea has put it very nicely when she says that it's... What you see, you know, we have four parts in the book, but they're like temporary orderings um, that worked at the moment where we had to organize them. Because I think they can be organized in other ways as well. But what we ended doing was to focus one on the bodily practices and relocation and relocations. So that's part one. So that's a lot, Uh, of course, uh, like a big theme in anthropology is the ethnographer's body. But also what kind of uh, you know other bodies that this um, ethnographer body relates to, and how it's sometimes displayed in um, unexpected ways, and the, these uh, the chapters in this section tries to work uh, on questions around the I guess the individual ethnographer also in a collective let's say um, collect, uh, field work setting, uh, and how do you work with serendipity, for example, or your hunches in, uh, in, that, um, in that way. And, and so that was a theme coming out there. Then we have a part two, which is on physical objects, where you have chapters on um, anthropologists experimenting with objects, exchange, for example, or with uh, uh, drawing as a way of uh, analyzing uh, both making diagrams and drawings and using uh, material objects in order to elucidate uh, particular parts of, again, either uh, individually uh, framed or uh, collectively framed uh, field sites. We have uh, postcards that are sent and objects that are being exchanged. Then we have part three, which we call infrastructural play, And that is, uh, on for example, the multimodal and also using uh, digital technology in um, ethnographic fieldwork and analysis and writing. Um, But interestingly, it also has a lot of the more traditional infrastructures that anthropologists have worked through, for example, archives um, and recording techniques. So there's some uh, questions there around, so what are the infrastructures uh, that we use and the technologies both for data collection and for analysis and for uh, dissemination or uh, engagement in, of the of the material and the analysis and then the last part is called incommensurabilities which is of course a huge topic uh, in anthropology worlds that connect or don't connect or um, you know ontologies that are radically different uh, like this uh, fundamental questions about culture is uh, work through these chapters um, with uh, also uh, concepts like analogy and decolonization. Uh, so the last part is very much about knowledge and uh, our conditions for creating knowledge and uh, basically, you know, um, our capacities to, um, to work with and through and in Uh, worlds that we don't understand or try to understand um, ending with um, again a theme that is actually going again through the whole book uh, about what is it that we know how can we not know uh, and what is um, overflowing our techniques and and, uh, concepts of knowing so I think that would be my very rough presentation of something that is uh, a temporary ordering.
1: That's amazing. Andrea, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I'll say that uh, I really recommend that people read the two afterwards that were written by Melanie Ford Lemus and Katie Ulrich and uh, Clement Rano and Marcus Rudolfi, who at the moment were PhD students. And they are really beautiful pieces that, that, uh, actually, I should say that at some point we were uh, we were thinking about bringing those to the very beginning, <laughs> but we would have ended with like three introductions and no way to close the book. Uh, but uh, they are really powerful pieces in 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 uh, helping us picture the location of all of these um, chapters in the. Uh, in both the bookshelf as a literal place, but also in the process of uh, putting together a research project, and and those pieces speak not only to PhD students, speak to all of us who are uh, starting new projects. And I'll just say that in the introduction, we uh, Brit and I also lay some of the uh, elements that we've um, shared with you in this conversation, um, sort of inviting the reader to come into the book, uh, sharing this um, orientation towards uh, systematic play, if you will. and uh, and also this invitation to to remain open to wonder about the things that we have in front of us while at the same time acknowledging the structures and hierarchies that we are a part of and, and not forgetting those.
3: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking us through this book and your thinking. We have taken up a lot of your time, so I will now move to my last question. So what are you working on now and what would be your next project? And we can start with Brit.
2: Thank you. Yes, uh, I'm working on welfare services in the digitalized uh, state. And that is something that really needs a lot of experimental techniques because it's a a field that is very much just next to me, just right here where I'm also based. I'm also a citizen and also a recipient of of welfare services. So I'm trying to find out what it is about the Nordic welfare model that other people look at and how that connect with digitalization of public sector services. And, uh, and that is uh, happening as part of a, a research center for digital welfare that I'm also heading and where um, researchers look at different aspects of this, uh, you know, the welfare that transpires in the encounter between the citizen and the welfare state. So that's my interest now at the moment. And
1: I am actually... Uh... It's 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 interesting because I'm not beginning this project. I've been thinking about this for a while, but only now am I being able to conduct uh, extended fieldwork. Uh, so it feels like I'm starting again in a very interesting way. So this is a project that I call expanding the social world, the social world downwards, and it's looking at the ways in which our uh, spatial imaginaries uh, notions of property and scientific knowledge about aquifers uh, reshape how we relate to uh, the world um, underground. And by we, I mean uh, people in Costa Rica, where I'm from and where I'm conducting this this research. So in this project, I will be... Um, learning new new techniques. Uh, I will be learning GIS uh, and I will be working on uh, creative remappings of the underground. I'm particularly interested in how aquifers have been forgotten from history. So if you, if you think about the underground, you usually think about mines or caves. Uh, but if you think about underground space from the perspective of aquifers and water flowing, you have to completely reorganize uh, your, your spatial imaginaries. And this is something that's happening as we speak here uh, in Costa Rica. So I'm I'm trying to understand the role of, of science and the ways in which private property changes or not as a result of this work.
0: Um,
1: and I will be here uh, for a few months uh, and hopefully writing uh, a book about this in the near future
3: amazing amazing projects we will certainly be looking forward to your next projects thank you so so much andrea and brit for your time for joining us for sharing your insights
2: with us you're welcome it was a pleasure
1: Fulvia, thank you so much uh it was really amazing to talk to you great to hear you brit i haven't seen seen you for a while given what the world is experiencing <laughs> and uh, uh, it's, it's been lovely to talk with both of you and to the listeners thank you for joining us thank you
3: I'm your host Fulia Pnar. this discussion of experimenting with ethnography a companion to analysis published by the Duke University Press in 2021 is brought to you by the New Books Network thank you for listening <laughs>